Hi, and welcome to Bloody Goodreads. I'm your host, Mark Goddard, uh, and we are back with another brilliant episode. Our guest this week, uh, we're back in Canada again. So he is the author of the brilliant book, The Infected, and he is the author of the brand new book, The Children of the Red Peak. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Craig DeLouis. Mark, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. No worries, no worries. Um, so the podcast here, we um, force authors to pick free books that they absolutely love, because um, I mean like that. So <laughs> we also like to talk about your career and, uh, yeah, just basically have a quick chat about, you know, what makes your book so great. So um, as I start my podcast with every time, how'd you get into the horror genre or genre in general? Why'd you love the genre? Thanks again for having me on, and uh, thanks everybody who's listening. It's no uh, it's great to be here and talk to you about some of my favorite books and and uh, one of my fa- absolute favorite genres, which is horror. Uh, I got into this game uh, back in the '90s, and it was it was very different publishing landscape than it is now. It was uh, very difficult to get in, and I had been writing from the age of nine. I I read a lot of Robert E. Howard in high school, and that, that inspired me to create the worlds that I was so happy to escape into. And I thought, wow, I could create that myself. And it really inspired me to want to be a writer from a very early age. And so I was going through all of that and writing my first novel. And then I started writing more. And it was very, like I said, it was a very difficult game in the 90s. You, You had to get an agent to get published, but you had to get published to get an agent. You had to write short stories to build up creds uh, to eventually write the novel. But I was always a novelist. I, I write short stories, but it's never been my thing. And so that one thing led to another. Finally got published with a small press. And I was very lucky because technology had changed. And there was this great thing called DocuTech, which was a an on-demand uh, printing technology. And so now small presses could publish books on the fly. And I was very lucky to get into a micro-brew press in um in oregon in the united states and that was my first published novel called paranoia was a psychological thriller about conspiracy theories and that mindset i was fascinated by it and that led me to a sci-fi novel being published with the same but then you know things weren't really going anywhere i had good sales for a small press but nothing spectacular ended up reading some zombie books and i got to know um a really terrific uh, author uh, in your country, David Moody, and uh, and when he back when he was pub- self publishing his PDFs, this was before mm-hmm. ebooks got big, mm-hmm. and he was such a nice guy, and I was really loved his work. And uh, in our conversations, I said to him, you know, I always wanted to write a zombie book. Maybe I'll give it a, give it a chance. And so I ended up writing a book called Tooth and Nail. It was uh, uh, the the first novel about what it would be like to be in the army fighting the zombies because most zombie books were post-apocalyptic and I was very interested in the apocalyptic part. And so I ended up writing this book. Mm. It got, um, it did phenomenally well. And that got me into uh, a a specialty publisher with zombie and apocalyptic fiction, which was permuted. That got me a deal to write The Infection, which you read. And that did extremely well, followed up with a book called The Killing Floor. And I said, well, zombies are getting really saturated now. There's so many uh, zombie books out there right now. I decided to try and broaden my horizons and go up the the uh, food chain, so to speak. And so I was able to get an agent based on the success I've had and got a book called Suffer the Children published with Simon & Schuster. And after that, I had um, several novels published with Hachette, which is one of the 
the other big five publishers in the United States, which led me to my mm. current release, which is The Children of Red Peak. So it was a very long journey. Uh, sorry for the long answer, but it was a long journey uh, from from this kid who wanted to write and create worlds he could escape into to this guy who writes horror. So did you read a lot of horror when you were younger? Not so much. I mostly read sci-fi and fantasy, but to me it's all the same because it's speculative fiction. You have an ordinary world where you introduce the fantastic and ordinary people have to deal with an extraordinary situation. And so when I, so pivoting from my first love was fantasy and sci-fi moving into horror with zombies being sort of the bridge between the two, uh, to me it was a natural uh evolution and natural fit and now i do a little bit of everything uh genre wise but i i do write a lot of horror and and i i really really enjoy it and now i read a lot of it too absolutely <laughs> <laughs> we said, uh, before we started the course uh, we've had david moody on here before um love david moody one of the nicest person people in the world great place to start if that's going to be your kind of love of zombie horror comes into um autumn's such a brilliant book so is there anybody else is there anybody anybody else that kind of um in the sci-fi fantasy bits that kind of really fired you to want to do writing well like i said robert e howard was probably first and foremost i not only fell in love with his conan series but i read pretty much everything the guy wrote i wrote books about him <laughs> i mean i read books about him <laughs> i absolutely fell in love with what he created and I think what appealed to me as a young teenage boy living on a farm outside a small town in New Jersey that was like this little Andy Griffith town and it was it was just this um, just fantastic escapism because he wrote in the pulp era uh, you know for weird tales and th those stories were sort of like the immediate, almost immediate descendants of the original dime novels where you had very lurid pul purple pulpy prose and um, over the top situations, this extremely powerful protagonist with inc incredible agency, you know, fighting the world. And he didn't, you know, most stories, you know, now I write stories where the, the protagonist needs to change and there's a more, a, um, a fully realized character arc on the hero's journey. But, those types of stories in the pulp era, it was they were more like, like the movie, uh, you know, uh, an, uh, an action movie where the hero doesn't need to change, the world needs to change, and the hero is the agent of of that change. And uh, so, to me, as a like I said, as a teenage boy growing up on a farm, it bored out of his mind. <laughs> it was extreme, extremely powerful escapism, and made me great wish fulfillment fiction for a for a young man and it made me feel powerful and that i could do anything and that i could explore these worlds and then eventually create them and so that was the appeal to me through robert e howard absolutely so let's segue in so as we said at the start of the podcast we get all our guests to come on and bring free books so what is your first bloody good read yeah well one of them is is david moody uh, but I'll, I'll save him for last uh the first book i would want to talk about is The Power by Naomi Alderman. This is an absolutely fantastic book with such a wonderful premise that was risky and even a little bit dangerous in today's age. But the way she handles it is not only straight up awesome, just she takes the premise seriously without and accepts the risks 
risks and just goes for it. And she carries through on it in a way where she could have pandered to the crowd and instead said, no, I'm, I have a thesis. I have a theme here that is, has enough integrity on its own. I'm going to stand by my art. And so I really admire her for that. And I admire the novel. So anyway, that's a, that's a long intro without saying what it is. So let me do that. The, the novel is again, is called the power and it, the uh, basic story idea is that in the near future, women start to discover a nascent, a dormant evolutionary trait, which is they're able to administer electric shocks through their hands. And they, as this st- starts to appear and it starts to develop, they start to hone their skill and train their skill that they that they've rediscovered as their 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 side of the species and they are suddenly the stronger sex and that has dramatic ramifications across the world the women are able to suddenly say you know what i'm not going to accept laws in saudi arabia where i can't drive and i can be beaten and beheaded and so there's revolution around the world uh there's incredible cultural and social change there's an enormous amount of resistance to this and it it ends up in what is could be called the final battle of the sexes, uh, where it's just outright fighting in some countries and in some some places between men and women to see who will be the leader of the pack, so to speak, in in their societies. And Alderman makes a very carries through on this premise beautifully, without a sense of comeuppance. It's more like this is happening and let's deal with it. Like, what would it look like? And carries through on the premise in this really wonderful way to say that it's not like, you know, became the quote, stronger sex and started to lead this, all the, had all the power in the leadership positions in the societies where they lived. It's not, it doesn't necessarily follow that that sense of justice would result in a better, a better world. Uh, that the world with one one gender being on top, so to speak, if the other gender is suddenly on top, the world would probably look a lot like it looks now. And so there's this suggestion that this future of a world, you know, ruled by women would look a lot like it does now. It's just that the genders would be reversed. And, and it's so cleverly done and wonderfully done that uh, I just absolutely love the book, and I talk about it quite a bit. And and the, and the reason um, is because I tend to love books that make me think as well as feel. I like books that challenge me with big ideas and make me think about things a little bit differently so that when the, I close the covers, I'm not just like, wow, that was a really great read. I'm actually thinking about it days after and talking about it with people, the ideas that were in it. And so that's the kind of stuff I love to read and it, and it influences me as, as could, because that's what I like to write. And so that would be my first pick. No, I totally agree. I think the, the three books in my top three on here, um, which is, uh, Jack Ketchum's Girl Next Door, uh, mm-hmm. Dweller by Jeff Strand and, um, Curious Incident with Dog in the Nighttime, um, three books that I will always recommend because they've always left, left me at the end of it thing, feeling something. You know, God, its door makes you, you know, hate humanity. <laughs> yes, it does. Um, well, uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's one of the most horrifying <laughs> novels ever written. 
because it's real and yeah. it, and it cuts right to the bone of human nature and it says it does what horror does best it holds up that fractured mirror to the human to the to the human soul and says this is you or this is you in certain circumstances and it's it's horrifying as a result brilliantly written but yeah it's one i would never kind of second read uh dweller i've always said you know boy and his monster such a brilliant book and jess strand is it, it molds comedy and horror so well and just the curious the internet we're talking at night time is just heartbreaking but it's such a wonderful book as well so it's it, it just leaves you you feel heartbroken but yeah. <laughs> you know and well, good books do that they're the books absolutely that remember. yeah they're the ones ones to remember was factory as well the end the ending of was factory by ian banks is just astounding love the book love the book but um no i think you're right it's uh it's always good when you find something that can make you feel your first book paranoia that was 2001 um you went into then the infection that's 2011 uh, permuted press huge publisher especially in like the zombie fiction then you try to kind of change you had quite a few zombie novels around that time uh, killing floor infection um suffer the children that was your kind of first kind of big big publisher with simon schuster what's the story behind suffer the children well the the novel is about a parasite that infects the world's children and claims their lives and so this is something that's horrifying enough on its own when i was starting to write the story i thought well what really scares the hell out of me because i want to write a horror novel and i love the idea of maybe borrowing from or or drawing from my uh, apocalyptic fiction roots and that but then going into something that is is much more in the horror realm than the apocalyptic realm although it's 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 both and the what the answer to that question what what terrifies me is if anything bad ever happened to my children because i i define myself as a human being first and foremost as a father and i absolutely i love my children more than myself and the idea came from hearing me and other dads say well i put my arm in a shredder for my kids and i thought well wait a minute would i put your arm in a shredder for my kids and how many arms would i put in a shredder for my kids and so that that there was this idea that the greatest love in the world, the purest love in the world, the love one has for one's children could take into a certain way or a certain extreme could become actually something that's evil. And so I was fascinated by that. And so I thought, I want to tell a vampire novel, but tell it from someone else's perspective, someone who isn't a vampire, someone who's actually loves the vampire and wants to take care of them. And so this, this parasite infects the world's children and kills them all. And this is horrifying in itself, as I said, because there are mass graves and you have all these people going through this horrific, horrific event and, and trying to let go and say goodbye to their children. But the children come back. Three days later, they rise from their graves. They march home and they're corpse-like, but they communicate that they want blood. And it's intuited that, it, that if they're given some human blood to drink that they will be they they come alive again they become the children they once were but only for a short amount of time they become a corpse again and so then they need more blood and then they need more blood and then they need more blood and if they don't get the blood they become a corpse again and worst of all they start to degrade they start to go away forever and so the parents realize well i'm i'm in a conundrum because i'm going to take as much blood as i can from myself until i'm almost, you know, barely function, my body's barely functioning and I'm, I'm starting to lose it. 
and uh, we're, I'm getting blood from friends and family, but then where am I going to get it from? Well, I'm going to get it from you and I'm going to get it from him and I'm going to get it from her because I'm going to keep my children alive no matter what. And so the kids in the vam- in the story are vampires, but the monsters in the story are the parents who will do anything for their kids to keep them alive. And it's a, it's an apocalyptic, it's an apocalypse story. Uh, but the apocalypse, the agent of the apocalypse is, is love. I really want to read this book. It's <laughs> <laughs> really, really cool. <laughs> well, it, it winked people out. Um, a woman, a, a woman mm. I know, uh, she said, I read your book and I, I was thinking about it at work and I burst into tears on an elevator in front of other people. And I said, <laughs> I said, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> because you know that's a good you, reaction is there really <laughs> yeah i was like wow okay great that's what exactly what you want to do to people with ho- good horror you know you want it to really affect them and give they so when they say yeah it gave me a nightmare it's like good <laughs> it's a horror book it should yeah honestly. exactly <laughs> so after suffer the children you took a slight different different route different genre you did crash drive Yes, yes, Crash Dive. Yeah, no uh, so, yeah, next one you did was um, Crash Dive, which is 2015. Yes. What made you want to switch genres? Well, I was writing novels for uh, Hachette by that uh, and, and Simon and & Schuster. And when you write novels, you know, you're tied into contracts and you have to do, you know, everything's done a certain way. And these are usually big idea, standalone books. And I wanted to write something a little different. I wanted to go back to... Uh, the dime novel concept of the type of stories that made me fall in love with writing. And the dime novel concept is you have these short, pulpy, 30 to 40,000 word books. Uh, They're usually serials. So you have, you know, like Westerns or pot boilers. So you have this hard nosed detective and, and, and in each story, the detective solves, you know, a a different um, caper, you know, or gets involved in a different caper. And, uh, so you have this likable protagonist with a lot of agency, so, you know, going through these adventures one after the other. And I thought, well, that's 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 a venerable tradition, and it's so wonderful. And it, it first of all, it doesn't violate my contract because the stories are they're they're more they're somewhere between a novella and a novel. So you're not making your publisher angry when they're saying we want to be the only thing you're publishing. And it's a great thing also for uh, self-publishing because you're, you need to come out with series and self-publishing. You need to have something that's pulpy and appealing and keeps people turning pages and reading books. And you're also going to be around $2.99 in price because that's the sweet spot with self-publishing, which, by the way, it, with adjusted for inflation, is about a dime back in the 1860s when the dime novels were out. A dime is about $2.89 today. And so I thought, well, I'm going to be a dime novel writer. And so I thought, uh, and I had re- read a book, uh, Bill, Captain Bill Ruiz reminisces about uh, submarine warfare in World War II. And I th- fell in love with submarines. And I knew if I read the book, I'd probably want to write something, but that's a risk. That's an occupational hazard. So I read the book. Yeah, I did want to write something on it. I came up with a series. And the result is Hor- Horatio Hornblower. Uh, on submarines in the Pacific and World War II. So I did a massive amount of research into everything. Like, what would it be like to be on a submarine under the water trying to hit a target that's trying to bomb you with depth charges? And the result was Crash Dive. It did extremely well. And I was amazed at how popular it was. And 
the audiobook was done by the great R.C. Bray, who's sort of a rock star in the audio world. And the audiobook continues to sell amazingly well. And uh, so from there, I ended up doing another series called Armor, which was what would it be like to fight in a tank from Kazarine Pass to, to uh, Berlin in World War II. And that series also did extremely well. And so now I'm writing one called Strike, which is about carrier aviation in the Pacific and in World War II, and it's a lot of fun. So I do a lot of, I, I get to, I love history. So I get to learn and read and uh, share my love of history. And while also exploring the technical detail, like you're not just in a tank and fire the gun, boom. There's such a, an, an amazing amount of process and detail that goes into maintaining the tank, the tank's speed, the tank's treads. Uh, the the tanks uh, a weaponry, uh, the limited view, the the way the tank would be free if it was cold outside, it'd be freezing inside. The, I mean, there was so many things going on with just the the tank itself as a main character, the submarine in Crash Dive as a main character, uh, and so I really fell in love with that aspect of it. Uh, similarly to the way you read a Horatio Hornblower novel, so much of the book is just them trying to get the ship from point A to point B at the right you know, sail and wind and everything else. And, um, and I think people really love that technical detail. It sort of scratches this weird itch we have. That's sort of my formula is like Horatio Hornblower on, on submarines. And then the, the armor is about a crew. Uh, so it's sort of like, what if fury, the movie fury were real. And now I'm doing, uh, sort of a Horatio Hornblower and airplanes in the Pacific. And it's just lots of fun to write that stuff. And it's very well received. So, your second bloody good read. What have you brought along with us? My second is Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. And it would not be considered uh, typically a, a horror novel. Uh, neither would The Power by Naomi Alderman. It's, uh, uh, but I would consider it a, a um, apocalyptic or um, speculative fiction novel with horror elements. Very strong horror elements. Blood Meridian is sort of weird because it's not a horror novel, but you could definitely consider it such. This is a novel that's extremely poetically written, as only Cormac McCarthy can. Uh, he is a, I'm not sure if it, it's not quite Southern Gothic, it's more Western Gothic. And he writes in this wonderful Southern Gothic type of prose, though, that where he's almost inventing words. And it's really like you're reading poetry it's just it's just amazing writing with really lurid descriptions uh the characters are larger than life it's set in the american west where a, a young man called uh, named the kid who's sort of listless and just is just the product of this incredibly violent world he lives in where life is cheap and the the gun rules he ends up falling in with a group of uh, adventurers that are going to try and invade Mexico on their own. And when that goes wrong, he ends up falling in with a group of bounty hunters uh, or um, scalp hunters, actually, that are being paid by the Mexican government to uh, kill Apaches. And uh, they find that one scalp's as good as the next, and they end up going on a killing spree. And it's it's absolutely horrific, not just in the action, but what it says about human nature and how life is at its core. We can, we're much more civilized now, but life is at its core where civilization doesn't exist. It's extremely violent. Life is extremely violent. 
and cheap. And so the kid is uh, this protagonist navigating this world and his mentor and antagonist is a man called the judge who is this incredibly eloquent, very, has all the veneers of civilization, but he's absolutely a brutal man, brutal and violent and seems to appreciate and understand this violent world better than anyone else. And by the end of the novel, you wonder, is this, is this a man or is this supposed to be the devil or is he the spirit of the American? You're not sure exactly what he is, much less who he is. And so the novel's extremely powerful. I've read it several times because um, I enjoy it equal, uh, equally, if not more, each time I read it. It's one of those books you can read over and over again every few years, kind of like 1984 or one of those books. And I just mm-hmm. uh, I absolutely love it. And it, as a novel of horror, it's um, it accomplishes quite a bit, even though it's not classically a horror novel. Another brilliant choice. <laughs> after Crash Dive and after Armor, where did you go after this? Your next novel, One of One Us. One of Us. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this was all. Uh, this was my first novel with Hachette, uh, published under the Orbit imprint, and it was also published in the UK under the Orbit UK imprint. And it's um, a novel. Of, thematically, it's about uh, prejudice as a fundamental human trait and what that looks like. And I wanted to tackle that in a misunderstood monster novel. And so there's another, some type of disease, but this one set way in the past. It was an STD that produced Mm. bizarre mutations in the children born to the mothers with the STD. And these children are rejected, largely rejected by their parents, and they grow up uh, in orphanages. And so these, these kids are monsters but they're they're just like you and me they they want a future they want to be happy they want friendship they want love but they're really denied it because society has absolutely rejected it and put them at uh, you know shove them off to the margins in these ramshackle orphanages throughout um, poor rural areas in the south and west of the united states where they can't be seen or heard and there's always this tension in towns where the orphanages are uh, the people are afraid of the monsters because they don't really understand them. And of course they're, they look, they're monstrous. They tap into some primal fear, but the, uh, so this tension boils over when the children X-Men style start to develop powers and they, uh, these powers will give them a lot more agency. And now they're no longer downtrodden and helpless and powerless. They now, have quite a bit of power with with which to claim their birthright which is a world in which they have a place and they have a say and they can they have choices and freedom and so they end up rising up and it's the sort of the apocalypse as a result of the war of these two branches of the human species so it's 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 a very dark book about human monsters and monstrous humans how mm. The, the, the real are bon- or they ask questions like are monsters born or made uh, or when you read this, it's very Southern Gothic. So it's written in a Southern Gothic poetic kind of style. The, the characters are larger than life. They stomp the earth. There are powerful themes of taboo and uh, prejudice and a society in decay, which is, so for me, it was absolutely such a wonderful thing to mash up these two genres, the misunderstood monster 
horror novel and the Southern classic American Southern Gothic because they just mesh together so perfectly. And uh, so the result is something that's going to feel familiar. You know, the idea of, of mutants growing up with powers and, and fighting for what's theirs is, is not entirely new, but it, the way it's told isn't, it makes it completely fresh that it's a, a Southern Gothic story and also where I took it. It's not like they saved the day or proved themselves and everybody's like, Oh, it's all right. We're not going to be prejudiced anymore. They, everybody digs in so that violence um, seems to be inevitable by the end because uh, nobody's going to get a break uh, and until they fight for it. And so um it's unfortunate, but like, again, it's one of those things where I hope my books that when people close the covers, they're disturbed, you know, they're affected by it and they, they reflect on the themes and they ask themselves questions. Well, what would I do? You know, in the case of suffer the children, how far would I go for someone I love? And what does that say about me? And in one of us, it's, would I, whose side would I be on and why? And what does that say about me? And, uh, and so that to me, it was a really fun, different kind of story to write. And I absolutely love it. And I'm really happy with the uh, reception it received. So after that book, you went on to Our War. That's a slightly Mm -hmm. different, again, slightly different uh, route to go down after, obviously, another horror novel. Um, What was the inspiration behind that one? Well, Our War is not a horror novel, but again, like some of my other books that are more speculative fiction than what you would classic, you know, classically call horror or typically call horror. Um, mm. Conventionally is the word I'm looking for. Call horror. Uh, it has horror elements. And so our war is something else that scared the hell out of me, which was what if a president of the United States like Trump did, was impeached or in some condition didn't want to leave office. And strangely, the initial idea was he doesn't leave office after he's voted out. He declares voter. (laughs) And I was like, and that triggers a civil war in the United States. And I was like, nah, nobody will believe that. (laughs) And so here we are. (laughs) Yeah. Which is so crazy. And then I came because that's the world we live in now. It's nuts. And so I came up with this, another idea. I was like, well, I'm going to say he's impeached and he's uh, and then enough Republicans in the Senate join the Democrats in convicting him. And he and that and after he's uh, convicted and he has to leave office, then he says, I'm not leaving. There's a giant Occupy Wall Street type of protest going on at the National Mall and, you know, right wing gunmen start shooting into the crowd and this is a signal for armed protest all over the country where uh right-wing militias who have been training for this for years and and expecting it and and hoping for it they start seizing government buildings the way they did at the wildlife oregon refuge in oregon and they find themselves because it's a coordinated effort all over the country they're so successful initially that it snowballs into a revolution and so they start taking things over and they find a lot of sympathy in where they're coming from, which is the rural rural areas in the United States. And what ends up, but once they get to the cities, they get stopped cold by police departments and these ad hoc quickly formed left-wing militias that form to defend their neighborhoods. And so, and the U S military, which is widely deployed 
and you have the national some of the national guard at home they they can't stop this so they declare neutrality and make sure that the food is being delivered and that basic law and order is being maintained to certain places but they cannot stop the violence entirely they're even the vaunted u.s military isn't big enough to fight its own a guerrilla war in its own country and so they're hoping for the military says this has got to be a political solution so they all go to ottawa congress and the and the president and they're negotiating while this war is being fought and the war does not look like the 1860s in the united states um it looks like bosnia in the 1990s and so the the story set in indianapolis i chose that because it's you know middle america in fact that city's called the crossroads of america by its residents and indianapolis is a very blue city a very dem- a liberal city in a very red, uh, very um, conservative uh, area. It's surrounded by a sea of red. So Indianapolis is under siege, similar to the way Sarajevo was. So it's sort of like, what if Sarajevo happened in the US in the second American Civil War? And uh, that is how I envisioned the Civil War would look like. It would look very much like Bosnia with city versus country and the war would be everywhere and everybody would fight and nobody would win. And the story um, focuses on five characters, Two of them are siblings who are fighting as child soldiers on opposite sides of the conflict. And then there's a journalist who's trying to expose the use of child soldiers to get it to stop. And then there's a UNICEF worker from Canada who flies in to try and help the children and she gets involved as well. And then the fifth character is uh, a militia sergeant to kind of give the right wing viewpoint. Um, I'm fairly left wing guy, but I wanted to present this like, this is a, not a story of bad right-wingers, good liberals. This is a story of different stories of what America is. And if there's no longer one story of what America is, then America is really just another multi-ethnic empire that's going to fail. And so was that's the idea. So I wanted to tell the right-wing story very in a really strong way uh, to give them their justice. They started the war. They're sort of the bad guys for that reason because mm-hmm. the real villain in the war, his story is the war itself and they're the agents that they started it so they're sort of the bad guys but i wanted to say well these are people with a different story of what america is and th- because this is a story about tribalism in america and what it's going to cost us if we're not careful and uh, and that it can happen here and that american exceptionalism will be the war's first casualty and so that that's that was sort of like all the thinking that went into the book uh, it's very dark. It has horror elements, and but it sh- sort of shows like, yeah, it can happen here, and this is what it might look like, and it'd be horrific. Uh, and it would all be because of tribalism and uh, because of lack of faith in democratic institutions and different stories of what America is. Let's hope it stays fiction. Yeah, it's <laughs> funny. It was so prescient that like it, somebody wrote read the book late after the impeachment was like criticizing the book because it was like oh a president's impeached and he doesn't leave oh how how original and i was you know but the book was written before all that happened very early in the trump administration so i was just laughing at that you know it's just like you can't win and uh um but uh yeah so your final buddy good read what is your third book i know it's a david movie one Yes, it's Hater by David Moody. Now, I fell in love with Autumn, the Autumn series. 
I thought, wow, this is what it would really be like to survive a zombie apocalypse. Like the zombies are were, were original and really wonderfully done. They were just sort of like <laughs> reacting to things around them like with base instinct, they weren't actually trying to eat for brains and things like that. It was just more like they would congregate around you and then they would get violent because they couldn't handle it. Uh, I just love that depiction of zombies. I love the way most of the characters just sort of fall on the floor and curl up in a fetal ball. And it's like, nope, I'm not dealing with this. I don't care what happens. You guys figure it out. And, you know, it reminded me of a conversation I had back at um, a zombie zombie con in in, um, Seattle in back in the day. And I met um, the the actress who played Barbara in Night of the Living Dead. And I said she said, yeah, I got a lot of flack from the feminist crowd like that. You know, Barbara's sort of helpless the whole movie. And I said, you know what? Barbara is me. I would (laughs) be scared out of my mind. And I have no idea if I would be able to even function. Like everyone you know dies except for a small group. And now they they all come back to life and they're all gathering around your house trying to get in. Like what would you do? I mean not everybody can have agency in a, in a crisis. And I said, you know what? Barbara is the most realistic character in that movie. And she, she liked that and because um, she felt the same way. And uh, so that was what I really love about uh, Autumn. It's like people, everything David writes is just like, okay, what if this really happened? Not like the wish fulfillment. Hey, I, I get to shoot people now and I don't have to pay taxes. That's wonderful. Like, but that the horror of losing everything and the world, but, and that you're surviving, but are you really living? These are a lot of themes that I ended up playing with in my zombie fiction. My zombie fiction is more walking dead than, uh, uh, what's that other series? Oh God, I can't, I'm drawing a blank. But that other series on a zombie series on TV that's real popular, where it's more wish fulfillment, it's more comical, it's more fun. Um, the Walking yeah. Dead is more serious, it's more philosophical. My my fiction's more like that. I think David's is too. But the book I wanted to talk about was Hater, where uh, you have this again this rift in the in evolution where one third of humanity suddenly this dormant genetic switch switches on and they become hateful and terrified of the other two thirds. And the only thing they can think to do is to, is to kill them. They had to kill them. Mm-hmm. And so you have these isolated incidents uh, where people are just killing people randomly. And, and, and you have uh, a perspective of, wouldn't this be terrifying? People are suddenly killing everybody and then suddenly at one point in the book, the perspective changes and you you start to see, you see what it's like to be on the other side. And that uh, perspective change is so beautiful and brilliantly done. Uh, it's no wonder the novel was uh, turned into a many part series and brought to the U S and published in hardcover and ended up getting optioned by, I think, yeah, Guillermo, del toro uh, optioned the book and toro, sadly yeah. never made it big missed opportunity guillermo you should make that uh <laughs> it would be fantastic a fantastic apocalyptic movie and it was just so well done it was like one of those um memorable twists that just make or break an author you know it reminded me of wool where 
you know, I read Hugh Howey's book and to see what the fuss was and, and it has like almost religious love uh, among its fan base. I personally, you know, it's, I always say your mileage varies, right? And I never mind a bad review because, you know, that, that was your subjective, but I, w- I wasn't the biggest fan of wool, but when I got to the end, I was like, what a great twist. And that mm-hmm. that twist was just so amazing that Hugh Howie is now Hugh Howie, right? And uh, and I think that's the same kind of thing that David pulled off in in Hater, uh, where you're just floored by it, and you are it's cathartic actually, and you just you just love it. And uh, so I love that book, and I love I love David as a person. He's always been really he's great. He and I became friends and colleagues over over the years, and I just love seeing his success. And I'm always going to be a big, well, I'm proud to call him a friend. I'm, I'm I, I think I'm a, I'm a fan first and foremost, and uh, and mm. so I, I'm eagerly awaiting his uh, his uh, his next. We we had a nice little chat, me and Dave Moody, about uh, about the movie and the rights, and you know his thoughts on the autumn movie and all that. So, yeah. Definitely go back and listen to that one if you if you if you're a David Moody fan. It's, yeah, uh, it's a really movie, good episode. It's not terrible. I mean, it's 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 low budget <laughs> and you know, uh, and a product of what they were able to do at the time on that budget. But I liked it. I mm. thought it was a fair representation <laughs> of the spirit of the novel. And I, and David, it was fun to see him and Zombie get up and play a, a small part in it. And, yep. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant choice. Obviously, I'm a, I'm a David Moody fan myself, so. I like that choice. <laughs> yep. He's awesome. So your so your new book, uh, The Children of the Red Peak. Mm-hmm. It's recently come out in the UK, I believe. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, about the book. It's I, I've read the premise of this one, and I I really like this the premise of this book. Sure. The The Children of Red Peak is my latest book from Hachette. Uh, I absolutely love working with them. They're one of the biggest big five publishers in the US and one of the top in the world. And I just um, and they 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 also have a big presence in the UK. Uh, with Orbit UK and Hachette, and uh, I just absolutely love working with them. It's a really good team. They really support their authors, and my, I want to give my sh- a shout-out to my editor, Bradley Angler, who's just fantastic to work with. He always knows how to get more out of me by making me excited instead of discouraged. You know, it's it's a fine li- line with edit- edit- editing. Um, he's terrific. So uh, here's about the book. It's a uh, it's really a psychological thriller. It has horror elements, uh, specifically cosmic horror. Uh, it's about a group of people who grew up in an apocalyptic cult and survived its horrific last days. And when one of them commits suicide, the remaining survivors get together to confront their past and the entity that appeared on the final night. It's told in two timelines, one where we see the kids growing up in the group and how everything goes wrong. And the other years later when they're adults and they're coping with trauma and ultimately trying to find closure on the tragedy. It has a bit of a literary take. So thematically, it's about faith, family, and the fine line between belief and delusion, delusion that ultimately proves lethal. And it came out November 17th from Hachette. Uh, it's available in physical and online bookstores. And the audio rights were recently acquired by Dreamscape. And uh, so it'll be out in audiobook as well. What else are you working on at the moment? What I'm working on right now is the Strike series, and I have a which is the uh, story about an, a carrier aviator in the Pacific in World War II. That's going to be another self-published mm-hmm. uh, series of dime novels. And uh, besides that, I'm working on uh, another 
series about um, a near future war against China in in the Pacific. Uh, that's called the Aviator. It's so it's so I'm writing about carrier aviation with two two uh, series and one set in the modern day and one set in World War Two. So that's what I'm working on now. Uh, Bradley Engler has has invited me to start pitching him for another horror novel, and so uh, I'm trying to come up with an idea that I that will catch me on fire, and I'll be able to produce something that I think is worth publishing and reading and writing. And so uh, that's, so I'll probably get into that early next year. And so that's what I'm working on now. I'm always working on something. It, it's um, very <laughs> prolific and, and I'll tell you nothing breeds, you know, being prolific like opportunity. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that my career has taken me where I am now and I can, I have some doors open and as long as the doors open, I'm going to try and try and submit work for it. Brilliant. So where can people find you on the social medias, um, Twitter, wherever you, wherever you are? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm on uh, craigdelouis.com. That's my website. Uh, and that and there I blog about movies and TV shows I like and books I've read. And uh, so if even if someone doesn't goes there and explores my fiction and finds they don't like if they don't see anything they like from my stuff, they'll find hopefully find something they do like. And if they do like my stuff, I tend to write what I like to read and read what I like to write. And so if they like my stuff, they'll find something more, you know, that they can read from other authors. And uh, so that's probably a great place to start. Um, I'm also on Goodreads. I'm on, uh, I have an Amazon author page um, and I'm on Twitter and also Facebook. I use Facebook more than anything else in terms of social media. And so, you know, I have an author page that, you know, with Facebook's algorithms, it's a giant pain. I'm kind of sorry I created it. Mm-hmm. Just friend me. Just send me a friend request, and and I'll be happy to friend up with you, and we can, and you, we can connect that way. Yeah, I would say I would say I love to hear from people who've read my work, uh, even if, and I would say that generally, not just for me, but any author you like. I can tell you as a reader that if you take a moment and reach out to them and tell them you love their work. They will, you know, somebody like Stephen King is very hard to get through to, but many, most mid-listers, I think, would be absolutely delighted. You'll really, you'll make their day. You'll make somebody's day, somebody who made your day, you made their, they made your day with a great book and you can make their day with a quick note just saying you appreciated what they did and how it affected you. They'll, I absolutely am floored by some of the letters I get. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank it's you, Mark. Lovely, it's been a chat. real Thank fun you. conversation. Thank you so much. And again, a huge thank you to Craig DeLouis for joining us on the podcast today. Um, some great choices that he's picked here for his bloody good reads. Uh, first time we've actually had a former guest on a pick list. So no, it's always, always good to have that on there. Again, thank you so much for listening. It's a brand new year now by the time we've actually released this. So we have some great offers coming up for 2021. Uh, we will put it out on the social media as you'll see coming up who we've got in the next few months so slight change to the recording schedule um, as I have posted on the social medias it's going to be every fortnight now for Bloody Good Reads it's the other week that we're not releasing the horrorcast so it'll be Bloody Good Reads and it'll be the Snakebite horrorcast being released so we'll have two different podcasts out every other week so still be getting the, the same amount of content as we had before uh, so, 
huge shout out as well to our sponsor who will be sponsoring us again this year it's abominable book club it is the monthly subscription box service uh, we post out pictures of the boxes all over on the twitter and the instagram so hopefully you'll be able to see what kind of amazing books we get in there this time around so the january box just come through uh, came with uh, Maggie's Graves, a second-hand book, uh, a keyring from The Shining, which I was quite impressed with. Uh, also get the snacks and the drinks and all the little bits and pieces as well inside there as well if you go for the full Guts box. So go give them a check out on Abundable Book Club at CrateJoy.com. And don't forget, you can also uh, get 10% off with the Horrorcast Network um, podcast. You can get... A bottle of book club, either the bare bones or the full set with 10% off using the code Bloody Goodreads. So go over there, go check them out, get some brilliant books. There's some amazing titles in the last few months um, Boatman's Daughter, Maggie's Grave, um, Bone Harvest, some brilliant books which I highly recommend, and from people we've, we've had on the show before as well. So, as always, you can catch us over on Twitter at Bloody Good Reads. You can catch us also over on Facebook. If you go to the groups and search in Bloody Good Reads, you can come over, have a chat. And as always, thank you for listening to the podcast. I have been your host, Mark Goddard, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>